We've got a lot of reasons why we hang on to our hurt and our resentment and our bitterness. But from heaven's perspective, it makes no sense that we wouldn't start experiencing, I don't mean the recipient of forgiveness, but being the giver of forgiveness. God would have us do that right away. Now, the reason we don't is because it's hard, really hard. As a matter of fact, the parable that I've been assigned here in Matthew chapter 18 tells us how hard it is just by the nature of how it illustrates it to us. As other people have rightly said, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive, right? It's great for us to sit in church and say everyone should forgive people when they do wrong against them. But when you're sinned against and someone has done something to you, it is is very difficult. So the parable that I want to look at tonight is the one that Scott asked me to have you walk through with me. And if you've got your little outline there, it starts with verse 21. And I don't know why verses 15 through 20 aren't listed because Pastor Scott said I'm supposed to preach on those as well. So it just makes it a little more challenging. You actually have to open your Bible or call it up on your device there. But I do think initially when I was told this section should be the passage we deal with tonight... It is important that we get verses 15 through 20 and verses 21 and 22 where your printed text starts because we really can't understand the parable until we understand the difficulty of cashing in on this wonderful gift that we can have tonight, forgiving the people that have wronged us, until we understand why it's hard. And the reason that it's hard is not just found there in verse 21 and 22, where Peter says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. I mean, that concept of forgiving is not only hard because we think there's got to be a quota, there's got to be a limit. But really, verses 15 through 20, that section that we usually go to when we try to study church discipline, I think that's key for us to to, to at least add to our thinking before we ever get to the parable that begins in verse 23. So let me put it this way. If you are a Christian, especially if you are a Christian, one of the reasons that forgiveness is hard for you is because when you really forgive, and I think you know what forgiveness is, you've experienced it, and you know what the Bible is asking you to do, you know what God would expect of you. One of the reasons it's hard is because we think when we forgive, we must not be taking sin seriously. That's why I think verses 15 through 20 are very important. Because to forgive someone when they've done something that's wrong, and we can even open up our Bibles and say, look what they did against us. It didn't just feel bad. God says it's wrong. Look what the Bible says. They've done something that the Bible says is sinful, and they've done it against me, my children, my husband, my wife. And we think, well, for me to just look the other way and go, well, okay, I guess I forgive you. It feels like we're kind of taking sin and and acting like it's not all that big of a deal. But if you do have that text open, and if not, just listen while I read it here. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus says Christianity is not about making light of sin. Sin is important to us as Christians, and it's a big deal, and it's a problem. The Bible says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, Look at that. If you have that that text called up on your phone or or you've got it there on your open Bible, if your brother sins against you, just don't worry about it. Forgive him. Is that what it says? Correct me if I read this wrongly. No, no, no. That's not what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Because our first temptation is to tell all of our friends, right? Talk about how badly we've been sinned against. But no, it says, go to that person. 
So in this passage, it's almost like we shouldn't forgive sins. Matter of fact, someone does you wrong. You've got somebody at work who's ripped you off. You've got someone at church that has done something to you, and you know it is sinful. The Bible doesn't say, well, just forgive them. It starts with, no, you need to try and correct this. We take sin seriously. It's a big problem. If he listens to you, and that, of course, means he says, oh, you're right, it's wrong, I'm sorry. Well, then you've gained your brother back. You've got this relationship fixed, fantastic. But consider if he doesn't listen to you. If he doesn't listen to you, well, then you should take one or two others along with you that every charge might be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, which is a reference to the Old Testament, that you couldn't go and accuse someone of something if it was serious before the elders of Israel unless you had two or three witnesses. So they say, well, it, it may be something, and if it's really big, well, then you should bring people in, and they will sit down with that person and say, yeah, you know what, this is wrong. You shouldn't have done that. If he refuses to listen to them, this is how important sin is in the Bible for Christians, that we're even willing to tell it to the church. Now, of course, if you sit as a part of a church and you say, someone has sinned against me, it's bad, it's wrong, it's immoral, it may even be illegal. I've now taken someone with me, they don't see it, they don't even want to own it, they don't want to repent. Well, then you've got to go tell someone who represents the church. You've got to go talk to a pastor. You've got to talk to one of the leaders of the church and say, here's the problem. If he refuses to listen even to the church, you've got leaders involved now, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Does that sound like forgiveness to you? Doesn't sound like forgiveness to me. So here's what I know. Forgiveness is not making light of sin. In other words, whatever the Bible would teach us about forgiveness, it's not just somehow dismissing the problem of sin like it doesn't matter. It does matter so much so that I'm willing to change my entire relationship with someone if they are unwilling to see the problem of sin in their life, at least as it relates to gaining my brother or relationship, reconciliation. Wow. Then it says in verses 18 through 20, you often hear verse 20 quoted out of context, but the context of verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, here's the context. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, bound in heaven. Whatever's loosed on earth, loosed in heaven. If you say this person has sinned against a person who is a Christian, they've confronted them, they've brought someone else along, they've talked to the church leaders, the church is now going to say, listen, no more. Until you see your sin, you're not even welcome to come to church. If you do that kind of binding, you go through this biblical process, it says, well, then it's done. God is with you on this. Whatever's bound on earth, bound in heaven. And I say to you, if, if two, verse 19 says, two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. If you change the relationship with someone in your church over an unrepentant sin, the Bible says God is right there with you. You make that reality. You, you make that statement. You make that declaration. God is there. It's going to be done where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's not saying I don't have to go to church because I can meet with another Christian at Starbucks and I don't need church because I'm having church there with Christ. Because, by the way, you can be by yourself in a cave in the middle of nowhere. Is God with you there? Of course. So this isn't about the you know, omnipresence of God. This is about the authority of Christ to stand and say sin is a big deal. And if you're not willing to see sin in a relationship and you've wronged someone, you need to realize that even the God in heaven has got a problem until you see sin for what it is, and it's going to mess our relationships up. Well, Peter says, well, what if someone does see their sin? Verse 21. What if someone does see the problem of sin? Maybe they say, I have sinned against you, and, and, and I recognize it now. How often should I go through the process? Seven times? That seems like a lot. Now, seriously, you got a guy at work who does something against you, 
The first time, he says, I'm sorry, you forgive him. The second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time. That's, we often throw Peter under the bus for this because Jesus is going to come back with such a big number. But that's a lot, is it not? For someone to do something. That, I mean, you don't give this kind of magnanimous patience with your children, do you? If your kid comes home late after curfew for the seventh time this month, I mean, come on. That's a big, that's a big number. Oh, I'm sorry. I lost track of time. I don't know what I was doing. That, that's pretty magnanimous. That's pretty big-hearted. Jesus says, no, I tell you, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. That's a lot. That's a lot of forgiveness. Here's the second reason forgiveness is hard for us. Not only because we think, if God is asking me to forgive someone that sins against me, maybe I don't think sin is a big deal, and I'm making a small thing of it. Secondly, we think, it may be when it comes to sin that they don't deserve it, because they've sinned too much, too often, or perhaps even to add something to this, too big. It's too big of a sin to forgive. So in this particular passage, Jesus is going to now give a parable to talk about forgiveness, to recognize this. We're not making a small matter of sin, and we're not saying that we're going to forgive, and we're only going to forgive so many times if someone says they're sorry. We're going to recognize the debt that we have before God, and we need to forgive the way God has forgiven us. That's what this whole parable is about. Now, finally, by way of introduction, let's look at the parable. Verse 23. Jesus says, I got a story to tell you. Here's my parable. Here's my story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to this. A king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And while he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents now, depending on the price of silver, which was the benchmark for money at that time, I mean, this is a, a number that becomes astronomical. The number is, if you, if you have a, a talent, that's about 70 pounds of silver. Okay, at 18 bucks an ounce, uh, you can do the math on this. That equals $2 billion at a minimum. There's other ways to calculate the talent based on the weight of silver or based on the earning wages of a worker. Either way, it's somewhere minimum $2 billion equivalent to somewhere around 5 6 and some would even say $7 billion if you're doing it based on the earnings of a worker, which sometimes the talent was the measure of. So whatever, you got a servant. I don't know what he's doing. I guess he's putting uh, his sandwich and his soda on the tab of his master. You know, I don't know. He's using the company credit card, you know, to fill up the camel. I'm not sure what it was. But if you think about $2 billion, I mean, you got to have people that work for you. If they rack up a, a tab of $2 billion, you understand this is like a comical way to put this. There are people, the first time Jesus told this story, that must have giggled when he said that because that's a crazy amount of money. Two to six, seven billion dollars. And then here's another time. They snickered here too, verse 25. And since he could not pay, can you imagine a worker of yours, a minimum wage worker coming and say, I can't pay my $2 billion debt? Oh, okay. Well, of course you can't. You're just a minimum wage worker. You can't pay a $2 billion debt. Verse 25. So his master said, fine, then we're done with this working relationship. You're going to be sold. I'm going to cut my losses, get whatever I can out of this as a servant here. I'm going to sell the servant and your wife and your kids. I'll get all the money I can and payment will be made. And whatever I get out of that, great. I cut my losses and I move on. The servant fell on his knees. I guess so. He's got quite a uh, expense account at this uh, particular job he's got. I mean, of course he wants to stay here. And, and he, he begs. Couldn't pay. Verse 26. 
starts to beg. He implores him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And again, the crowd in the first century probably snickered at that. $2 billion, no way you're going to pay that back. And out of, here's the key word, pity for him. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, let's just stop there. I don't want to read the whole parable until we deal with what the pattern or the template is here. After saying, do Christians take sin seriously? And the answer is, yes, we take it seriously. We're seeking repentance from sinners. Then we have, well, wait a minute. There are some people that probably sin too much to get forgiven or sin too often to be forgiven. Jesus says, no, let's just talk about forgiveness and let's just think about forgiveness. And we start with what forgiveness is. Here's the first thing we need to recognize about forgiveness being hard. He's going to equate it to money. There's nothing people are going to guard more in their life than money. Money is hard to forgive. If someone racks up a debt against you and it's monetary, it's money, it's hard for you to let that go. If it's a small amount of money, it may be easy if you have a lot of money, but the more money someone owes you, the harder it is to let it go. And that's a pretty universal thing. So Jesus employs something to show you how hard it would be to let go of the debt. When you see in the Bible the word forgiveness, in the New Testament in particular, the Greek word aphiomai, is an, it's an accounting word. It's a word like it fits perfectly in a story about money. It means releasing the debt. Aphiomai means to let go of, to release it, to let it go. As a matter of fact, if you want to see what forgiveness means in this parable, here's a good way to put it, to tear up the debt, to tear up the debt. I, had a, uh, I was one of the few people in America that bought a Daihatsu. Does anyone know what a Daihatsu is? Do you remember the Daihatsu? They still make them, I guess, as, you know, I don't know, as jokes. I'm not sure they make them. They make them for you know, golf carts or whatever, and they're sold around the world in various places. But mine was a three-cylinder Daihatsu. Now, that was all I could afford, but I bought this Daihatsu and uh, drove it around and realized what a terrible car it was. No one wanted to buy it from me, so I was able to get a car. Someone actually, I think a family member may have given me a car, which was great, and it was better, the used car I was given, than the new car that I had bought, which was this cheap Daihatsu. So I hang on to it because I didn't know what to do with it, but I was doing college ministry at the time in the church, and there was a guy in the church that desperately needed a car, and I said, look, I got this extra car. I'm trying to be a good model of Christianity and generosity, and now the world is ending in the middle of my sermon. Does that mean I'm out of time? What does that mean? What was that? I, re- I realize it's a branch. Thank you, everybody. Pastor's a moron. What's that? It's a branch, Pastor Mike. No, I get that. I understand that. Why is it falling down would be another way to pose the question to you. Does that happen around here very often? Just falling down? Is someone doing tree trimming right now? Should we all move? All right. Got no acceptable answers. I'll just move on. I guess that happens. Why we don't preach outdoors very often. Template. Money, hard to forgive money. I was telling you a story. It was very interesting, and yet that branch was more interesting to you than the story. Heads started turning, and when heads turned that direction, I tried to look over to here to see if I could keep anyone's attention. There was a few people over here that still paid attention to me. Riveting story about your Daihatsu. It was red. It was a three-cylinder. It was a piece of junk, but I kept it. It was a new car. didn't know what to do with it. I let this guy use it, and it's funny because when you're a young pastor doing college ministry, you have zero money. They pay you next to nothing. I was poor. I was married. I needed every dime I had. I had a little, quote-unquote, asset, my Daihatsu, and so I, I sat down with this guy, and I drew up a contract. And I thought, what's the worst thing that could happen here? I guess as I let him use my car, he could crash it, and whatever money I might have gotten out of the Daihatsu, I would lose, right? 
So I wrote up this contract and I thought, well, let's just at least promise that you'll get insurance and you'll cover the car with your insurance. I want you to cover it with not just collision and, and, and basic liability. I want you to cover it with comprehensive coverage, which may have made the, uh, you know, the insurance agent laugh on the Daihatsu. But anyway, that's what I want. And I made him sign it and he signed it. Well, sure enough, as God would have it, he crashed my car. What are the chances of that, by the way? Right? I'm thinking I'm so prudent, thinking ahead, sign this, make sure you have insurance. He crashes it. I go, no problem. This is a guy in my church, okay? Think about this. College pastor, here's the car. You can use it. Just make sure you get insurance. That's great. One day I'll sell it or put it in a museum. I don't know. And so he crashes the car, and he brings it to my house behind a tow truck. Here's Here, Pastor Mike, here's your car back. I'm sorry, I crashed it. I said, no problem. Let's get your insurance guy on the phone. Oh, yeah, about that. I never got insurance. Well, that really tests the sanctification of a pastor at that point. This dopey guy did not get insurance, and I made him, I made him sign it like that does anything, I suppose, right? I mean, this is on a yellow pad I had in my office. Sign this, right? And he signed it. He crashed it. Um. I struggled with that. I, I got an estimate of what it would cost to get it fixed. It was like $2,000 to fix a car that's probably worth, I don't know, $4,000. And um, I said, well, you're going to need to pay for that. I had no money. So I felt like, okay, I'll look for this payment back. Can you make payments? Of course, how long do you think that lasted? didn't last, but a couple months. Here's the thing that bugged me the most. Number one, preaching to him, that bugged me. Worse than preaching to him was going to church and after church going to a restaurant, watching him at a restaurant, buying a big meal and paying money and tipping the waitress. And all. I would see him across the way at one of our favorite restaurants and I was just seething. See, this is a perfect example of forgiveness. Money, I want my money. Because I want there to be equity. These words about money, when you put a loan out, you want to be whole. You want it to be even. You want there to be settling. I want the debt to be settled. I want things to be even. And he wasn't willing to do it, and he was willing to spend his own money to feed his big fat face is how I felt about it. And you're not paying me a dime back for the money you owe me when you made a promise and you broke the promise. Well, this was many, many years ago, and much like your pastor, I was assigned to preach this passage. And I just was so convicted because I thought Jesus tried to show us what forgiveness was about, tying it to money. And money was one of the hardest things for us to let go of, particularly for me with no money to have $2,000 debt that I know I was never going to get paid off. And I remember there in the middle of my study on a Saturday afternoon, going over there, finding the file that I'd marked red with his name on it, pulling that out. And there's that little yellow piece of paper. And I took it over to the trash can and I tore it up in the smallest pieces I could tear it up, threw it in the trash. And I thought, you know, I think that's the picture of forgiveness in this text. Half an hour later, I pulled it out, tried to paste it back together as best I could. <laughs> no, that was so hard. That was so hard. That's the picture here, though, is tearing up the debt. Hard for us to do that because in reality, it's like the scales. We want things to be even. That's why you go to small claims court. Is it not to have everybody made whole? We want it to be fixed. We want there to be equity. And here's a text that says it wasn't based on equity. It was based on what word? I slowed down to read it for you. Verse 27 in the ESV, it translates this word spelanchthon. It translates it this way, 
pity. Now, I don't know if that's the best word. Spelanchthon, by the way, is the word in Greek for like your bowels. <laughs> Probably why they don't translate it that way. It's your, like your lower gut, your gut. You feel it in your gut. I feel bad for this guy. He's, I mean, look at the, what's in front of it. Verse 26, he falls on his knees. He begs, please, please, please. And something moved him in his gut. And the king said, okay. He released him. Here's an interesting play on words. And he forgave him. He released him and then he released him. That was the picture. He released him and he released him. He let him go. Much like tearing up that piece of paper and dropping it in my trash can, I'll never forget that. I have a visual picture of that. It was a costly lesson God taught me about forgiveness. And I let it go into the trash can. It's almost like you need that picture of the palms down, letting go of debt, to say, I'm, I'm letting it go. I have to let it go. A fee am I. He released him and he released him. You have to picture this in your mind that that is the example of God to us because that's where we are in this parable. God looks at you. You had a debt. You cried out in repentance. And did you not beg him for his mercy and say, forgive me? Now, if you haven't, you're not saved. Okay. If you claim Christ because you walked an aisle, you threw a you know, pine cone in the fire, whatever. Real Christianity has got to bring you to the place, the breaking point where you're saying, God, I am a sinner I've sinned before you. Remember that parable in Luke where the Pharisee's standing on the temple mount? He's praying. He's in church. He's seeking God, apparently, and he's praying. I'm glad I haven't created a lot of sins here. I haven't done all these things. Like this tax collector here, he, he wouldn't even look up to God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, you did that at one point. Christian, smile at me if you've done that. You've done that. Some of you, right? Now, think about that. At that point, what does the Bible say? God released you, and he released you. Palms down, took everything, and let it go. He let it go. Psalm 103, he removed your debt from you as far as the east is from the west. To where the next time I saw him eating food at a restaurant, buying ice cream at the ice cream shop, you know, sporting a new jacket at church, I was able to say, I've released the debt. I'm not looking at that saying that's mine. He owes that to me. It was done. At least it was supposed to be. And it was my challenge to live in that forgiveness. But God did that to us. And that's the turn of the tables here. Verse 28, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a hundred denarii, that's a lot of money if you're a minimum wage worker. I mean, a hundred denarii is a day's wage. So that's about, for a low-income person, that's about $8,000. And if you're making minimum wage, $8,000 is a lot of money for someone to owe you. But remember, the picture here is he's been forgiven somewhere between, I don't know, let's just round it off, $4 billion debt. It's been gone, done. Now, if someone owed you $8,000, I mean, some of you make a lot more than minimum wage, but if someone was sitting here that owed you $8,000 and was doing nothing to pay you off, I'd irk you, would it not? $8,000? Unless you have a ton, a ton, a ton of money. Well, then picture $800,000. That's not a debt you just wink at. $8,000. So he seized him and he began to choke him. Talk about the difference of letting go, palms down, fingers open. Here he is clinching, choking, seizing him. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant, verse 29, deja vu, fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will repay you. That's when it should waft back into your head. This sounds familiar. I've done that before. So verse 30, so he had pity on him. Is that what it says? No, he refused. 
He wasn't going to unclench his hands. His fingers were still wrenched around his clothing, his collar. And he dragged him off to prison that he should pay the debt. Now, when the onlookers, his fellow servants, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed because here's the guy who the master forgave $5 billion. They were distressed. Look at this. And they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. And when the master summonsed him, he said, you wicked servant. Well, wait a minute. Guy owed you $8,000. Is it wrong for me, God, to pray? Please, I, this guy needs to pay it back. God, I'm going to take him to court. God, I have to have him pay that back. It's not right. It's not just. There's an injustice here. That seems like a godly thing, but it's not. Not if you've been forgiven $5 billion. You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, this is such a simple parable, but there's the challenge. For you, if you want to know what forgiveness is, it's releasing the debt, tearing up the debt. We're going to look at this parable. Here's the three components. Tearing up the debt. Here's the next component. Always remembering the debt that God tore up for you. You have to take your forgiveness and always keep that in the forefront of your mind. That's why our worship songs so often get back around to the forgiveness we've received. If you forget what you've been forgiven, you will be a terrible Christian. You have to keep that in your mind. It has to be a reminder to you of what you've been forgiven. So that when Paul's writing his letter and he thinks about sinners, he says, I am the worst of sinners. Now, I know we can take that too far. Some of the old Puritan writers, they write these books and it's like, I'm a filthy, rotten worm and I'm awful and I'm terrible. There's no one worse than me. And you can look at that and say, well, this guy's got some kind of weird complex. And you can see where it's taken too far, where someone thinks they're just absolutely nothing and therefore, they don't even try to live the Christian life for the glory of God in any positive way. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person that stands on the Temple Mount and prays and thanks God he's not that bad of a sinner. Who comes to church and sings the song and when he hears lyrics and sings them or sees them on the screen about forgiveness, he looks across the way and looks at another guy and says, yeah, that guy's pretty bad. I, I hope he means that when he sings that because he's a bad sinner. We've got to keep our own forgiveness in the forefront of our mind. And I just wonder, do you think anyone could sin against you the way God has been sinned against by you? Was that too wordy? Do you think you could ever have anyone sin against you? Let's just put it this way. The way you've sinned against God? No, I I don't think so. As a matter of fact, it's not how much someone has sinned against you. It's who you are versus who God is. I may have given you this illustration last year. I, I seem to think of this context when I'm about to repeat myself, and if I am, just smile and pretend I've never give, used this illustration before. If my kid comes home from school and he says, I belted a guy in the mouth today, okay, I will say who and why and all of that. And if he says, well, I, got, I lost my temper when I hit some kid on the schoolyard. Let's just say my kid's in fifth grade. I go, oh, wow, that's bad, yeah. You should, you know, go apologize or whatever. Yeah, I mean, something. That's bad. If you said, no, the guy hit in the mouth was the, uh, was the lunch lady. It wasn't a guy. Oh, wow. No, it wasn't. It was my teacher. Oh, wow. No, you know who I smacked in the mouth today at, at school, Dad? I, I smacked the principal in the mouth. Whoa. No, Dad, I, 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 you got that wrong. I, I, I did hit the principal, but then the cops showed up, and then I, I popped the cop in the mouth. Whoa. Then they took me in the squad car down to the juvenile hall, 
and I went before this judge in a robe and I broke away from the bailiff and I punched the judge in the mouth. I mean, I could go on, right? If I go on, I'm going to get to politicians and then you're going to cheer and I don't want to do that. <laughs> but seriously, if someone breaks out of the line at one of these, you know, political rallies and punches the person in the mouth that's behind the podium, you tell me that's not going to be a big deal? A lot bigger than you punching the fifth grade schoolmate on the, on the playground. And that's why I'm saying this. No matter who sins against you and how much they sin against you, because you're not God, that debt could never be compared. Do you understand what I'm saying? When David sins, lusts after his neighbor's wife, beds her down, gets her pregnant, finally gets convicted at the confrontation of Nathan the prophet, and then he prays his prayer of repentance. Do you remember what he said? He said, against you, speaking to God, and you only have I sinned. I'm thinking if I'm Uriah's brother, I I'm, what are you talking about? You've sinned against my family. I mean, if I'm Uriah's father, and this is my son you murdered, I, I don't think you've just sinned against God. It's such a grievous thing for us to sin against the holy God of the universe. That no matter what someone does to you, and they may do something horrible, and i got to think in a crowd this size, there are people right now when I talk about forgiveness who are thinking of people that have done something not just you know, unethical, but completely immoral and perhaps radically illegal against you or someone in your family, and you're saying, crossed arms, I could never forgive, fists clenched, I can't forgive. All I'm telling you, I don't care if it's the worst story you're going to hear on Dateline one, one month. It's never going to equate to what you've done simply by lying when God said, you shall not bear false witness. You've sinned against the God of the universe, and so have I. And because of that, you could do a lot of sin against me. And the inequity of a $2 billion debt and an $8,000 debt, that is the inequity. Let's invert it. Maybe this will help. I come up to you tonight and I say, I just really like you. I was, I was preaching and you paid so much attention. The branch fell down. You didn't even look. I like you. And I just happen to come into a lot of money. I'm just going to give you, it's in my car. I'm going to give you $500,000 in cash just because I like the way you paid attention during the sermon. I do that a lot. But let's just say that's going to happen, right? Now, you'd feel pretty good. You'd hug me, right? Probably tell me, you'd say it's the best sermon you've ever heard. I assume you'd write me a thank you note. You might even create a worship song to sing to me. That would be, that would be awesome. I gave you $500,000 in cash. Now, you're, you're down at In-N-Out Burger. Do you have one of those around here? Oh, you do, somewhere, within driving distance. You happen to see in there some kids that look familiar, look like that pastor that just came to preach to us, and it's my son. He's in junior high. He's standing in line. He gets up to the front. He reaches in his pocket. He's already ordered a double-double, and he's got no money, and he needs now you know, $8.25. I gave it to you in cash, by the way, in a big, fat wad with a rubber band around it. You didn't even know where to put it. Such a big wad. And there he is. And you look at him and go, what a punk shows up at in and out without any money. And he starts begging the guy behind the couch, just give me one. Come on, can't I have one? And you know it's my son. I don't know. You think you're going to peel off something out of that wad and give him enough money for a hamburger? I think you would. And if you didn't and your wife's standing next to you, she's going to think you're a real heel, right? 
That's the guy's son. He gave you $500,000. The kid needs 10 bucks. Give him 10 bucks. Give him 20. Right? I bet you would. Even if he was a punk. Some people that sin against you and you think there's no way I can look at them as a person deserving of this. But because of this parable, it should make it very clear to us. When you look at the debt that God has forgiven, or let's put it in a positive way, the wealth he's given you in terms of forgiveness. And now there's someone in your life that needs you to peel off a $20 bill and say, okay, it's not right. You don't deserve it. You've sinned too much, whatever. But here you go. Here's the 20. Do it with a good heart. And even if you have to grit your teeth, do it anyway. Even if you don't feel the pity or the mercy, do it anyway. Tear up the debt. Gets worse, verse 34 and 35. In his anger, his master delivered this guy who would not forgive his fellow servant. He delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. I thought you were going to forgive him his debt. Now, I'm not going to forgive him his debt. I wish it ended there and we can kind of tiptoe around what it kind of seems to say. But look at verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. Can you imagine being in the crowd when Jesus says this, looking at you with his brown eyes and saying, any one of you, any one of you right here, sitting out here by the Sea of Galilee, any one of you, my Father's going to do that to you. If you do not forgive your brother, oh, wait a minute, I guess you can't clench your teeth from your heart. Wow. Forgiveness is difficult because we think we're not taking sin seriously. No, you are. It's just that you believe in something called grace and you believe in the cross. You believe that there's a payment for sin. Hard because we think they don't deserve it. Clearly, in your mind, they may not. Fine. But God says, listen to what I've done to you. I've torn up the debt. There's the picture. I want you to remember the debt I've torn up when you have to deal with the debts in your life. Now, let's put it this way. Here's how I wrote it down, at least. Prove your forgiveness. You've got to prove you're forgiven. And if you fail to forgive from your heart, you prove that you're not forgiven because I guess you haven't experienced real forgiveness. Forgiveness is something you have to do. It's very difficult because God says, if I really have forgiven you, there's not only an experiential qualification that you have to do this, but there's an empowerment. And here's why. If you look at the Bible and you do not factor in the Holy Spirit of God, then, then we're, we're struggling with passages like this. But here's the thing. If you are really forgiven, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but God dispatches his spirit to go and, I know we say in you, to live in you, but you understand this is, not, this is a spatial analogy. The spirit is so relating to you now that it's like he's in you. Right? It's not like you can find a part of the, your torso, where, it, but he's so relating to you. He's so giving so much attention to you now. He now is actively involved in your life to where you are now in no way even able not to forgive. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's automatic. Doesn't mean it's robotic. It does mean, though, that it will prove whether or not you are forgiven. Because if you are forgiven, you'll not only have the experiential qualification to do it, you'll have the empowerment to do it, and you will be able to do it. And when you do release the debt and you really do, you do tear up the debt and throw it away and you open-handedly, palms down, drop the debt for the person that sinned against you, you're going to stand back and say, wow, I, I guess God does dwell in me. I guess I am forgiven. Look at how I can do that. 
Non-Christians can't do that. There's an empowerment for my hands to open and let that debt go. I mean, I can state it positively, prove your forgiveness, or I can state it passively. When you forgive, it proves your forgiveness. But you need to see the connection between if you are forgiven, you are going to eventually, it'll be hard. You're going to peel your fingers off of that, and you're going to find your heart in sync with that. You will do it from the heart. There will be something in your heart because God's presence is there that will be able to say, yeah, that's the right thing to do. Part of it is continuing to sing those worship songs where we're remembering the debt. We're remembering that all sin is, is, is nailed on the cross for Christians. We recognize that it's there, it's paid for. And it helps me put my, the debts against me in perspective. Prove your forgiveness. I guess one way, at least in the modern speak of our day, people say, well, I can forgive, but I can't forget, right? That's like I talk about the kid who's in a classroom and he keeps standing up and talking to his neighbor and teacher keeps, sit down, sit down. Some teachers I talked about here, you know what this is like, sit down, Johnny, Johnny, sit down. And finally, Johnny sits down and he grits his teeth. He looks at the teacher and says, teacher, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You have to forgive from the heart, which another way to say it is you will learn to forgive and forget. Amy Carmichael, do you know that name? Do you know Amy Carmichael? If not, you should look her up and study her her life. She says this, if I say yes, I will forgive, but I cannot forget. As though the God who twice a day washes all the sands on all the shores of all the world, he could not wash away these memories from my mind, then I know nothing of Christ's love. There is something that empowers real Christians to do this. The kudzu vine. Do you know the kudzu vine? Anybody from the south? The kudzu vine. It's a a vine that we brought over from somewhere in Asia, I guess, where the climate kind of keeps it in check. And and, and the the, the cycle of the climate, you know, it, it thrives and then it has to recede. Well, in the south... In Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, it just, the climate is perfect. It's a perfect breeding ground for the kudzu vine. And, and you know, it's like the old junk, you know, car in the, in the backyard of the house, and then it's gone. I mean, if you go on the Internet and you even look at time-lapse photography of the kudzu vine in the south, it just goes and takes everything over. When I think of forgiveness, I often think of that verse in Hebrews 12 that talks about the sin that so easily entangles us. When you chop off the branches of, of this this, this retaliation and this frustration and this anger and this bitterness and this holding on to someone else's debt and not letting it go. You're going to let it go. And I jokingly said, I tore up that debt for that Daihatsu and I threw it in the trash. And then I jokingly said, I put it back on the table and pasted it back together, which of course I was joking. I didn't, I wanted to. But here's the thing about forgiveness. It'll crawl out of the trash can on its own and start to reassemble itself on the desk. The sin that so easily entangles, you're going to need this sermon, whether you liked it or not. You're going to need this sermon, not only to sit here and agree with it now and say, yes, God, I agree with that. I'm a Christian. I need to forgive, forgive from the heart, let it go, palms down, unclench my fingers, and I need to let go the debt of the person that sinned against me. You're going to need to keep on doing that. Not because you'll keep being sinned against in our sinful world, but because the person that you tonight say, yes, God, I am going to forgive them. It's going to be like that kudzu vine. You're going to cut it back and then it's just going to keep on going because the fallen flesh that we live in is the perfect breeding ground for unforgiveness. So we're going to have to work on this until the day we die.
But here's the thing about real Christians. Because they are real Christians and they are indwelt by the Spirit, that's going to be a fight you're going to do. I mean, there's lots of things. You brush your teeth every day, do you not? Smile at me if you brush your teeth every day. You do that, right? Well, I may have cleaned them last week. Oh, I don't need to keep doing this. Well, because you need to keep doing it. If not, you're going to look bad and smell bad and your teeth, your, your head will fall apart. Brush your teeth. It's the same thing with forgiveness. That's why I like the quote of Amy Carmichael. If the God who washes the shores on the, sea, on the beaches of every you know, beach and all the if he can't wash, it's going to be that way, though, and you're going to have to cooperate with God saying, God, wash it away, wash it away. It's a lesson we're going to need to revisit often. The sin that's so easily entangles, but God will help us. You need to know what it is. You need to know the template. Tear up the debt. You need to keep revisiting your own forgiveness. You need to make sure that you realize that the forgiveness that we grant, it proves the reality of our forgiveness.